What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Stuart Kestenbaum, the author of six collections of poems, most recently, Things Seem to be Breaking, Dear Book Editions 2021. He was the host of the main public radio program, Poems from Here, and was host curator of the podcast, Make Time. He was director of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts from 1988 to 2015. More recently, working with the Libra Foundation, he has designed and implemented a residency program for artists and writers called Monson Arts. Stu has written and spoken widely on craft making and creativity, and his poems and writing have appeared in numerous small press publications and magazines. He served as Maine's Poet Laureate from 2016 to 2021. So, Stuart, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. It's, it's great to see you and hear you. Good to be with you, Peter. We have an ambitious agenda today. And before we begin, I usually ask guests to talk a little bit about themselves, who they are, where they came from, how they found their way to Maine, what sort of credentials do they have to be here and, and uh, giving us information where did you come from? Where did I come from? I came from the, the Garden State of New Jersey. And I, I first came to Maine when I was in high school and my, uh, my sister-in-law's family had a cottage or a compound of cottages on Long Lake in Naples, which seems very south now, you know, but seemed very north to me at, at the time. And, and I stayed in a a cabin overnight and just coming from New Jersey where the world was quite built up I was just amazed at how sparse things seemed to be and it also happened that I was reading In Cold Blood at the time probably not the best choice of a, a book to, to read but then uh, probably five years later my friend Alice Hildebrand whose family had a cottage at Fly Point said come up and visit and I, I hitchhiked from New Jersey got a a ride all the way from Boston to Orland and then hitchhiked down to Fly Point in Brooklyn and uh, was just so taken with the kind of austere beauty and the light and the way the islands looked. It felt like uh, un an unimaginable place, I guess, but real. And I just, I think I was so taken with it at that time and always knew I wanted to get back in it any way I could. Un unimaginable places to be welcoming means I think that you have to wrap your brain around them some way. You have to imagine something other than creatures lurking in the woods outside the cabin um, coming after you. I mean, can you remember any of those first impressions that sort of shaped that response? Well, I mean, the first impression was it was so much less built up than, than the landscape that I was used to looking at. And it also felt like it had a you know, now I see it, I recognize the heritage and the, 
the past of it. But I, I, I don't know if I did that at first. I think I just felt like the, the space around me, the way the light was, all, all those things really spoke to me. And I felt like I wanted to be in a world that was like that, I guess. It, I, I didn't really have an idea of a career. Um, so it wasn't like I said, oh, I should go there and I'll be able to do this. I just knew I wanted to get to Maine. Had you seen the ocean before? Yes. Yes, I was. I, I loved going to the Jersey Shore, which has better waves than Maine. Yeah. It's, it's a little tackier, but, you know, I've always liked Old Orchard Beach. <laughs> it's the same ocean, isn't it? Well, I, yeah. I, there's something that I really like about Old Orchard Beach because it's like Maine and New Jersey coming together. And so it's always spoken to me. So where did, where you went to college away or did you go to college here? No, I went to college in upstate New York at Hamilton College. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then I came to Maine, I traveled, traveled around Europe. And then I came to Maine. Uh, After that, I came to visit my sister. I had got a job washing dishes at the Roma, which was one of the only restaurants in Portland. If you can imagine, there were only a few restaurants in Portland. And then I saw an ad in the Maine Times for a pottery apprentice. And so I apprenticed to Larry Adlerstein at Portland Pottery. I worked with him for about a year. And when I finished, he said, you know, you should go to a place like Haystack or Penland and you could learn more there. And so I went to Haystack as a student in ceramics and uh, it was a three week session. Had you, had you made pots before? Uh, when I was in college, well, we had a, a program called Winter Study. So it was a semester, a month long, uh, it was the month of January, you could do different courses. And I took a, a ceramics course then when I was a senior. I really hadn't done much, but I had a feel for what clay was like. So I think that allowed me to want to pursue it more. Um, when did you write poetry for the first time? Oh, well, I, I, you know, in elementary school, I wrote poems that were assignments. And then in junior high, we had to memorize a poem for, for a class. And I uh, memorized a poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti uh, about Jesus. Sometime during eternity, some guy show up. And one of them who shows up real late is a carpenter. And I just like the idea that it was a, it was describing something that was ancient, but in a contemporary way. And it was uh, irreverent, but not. And I had a teacher who was very reverent. And I, I think I like the idea that I could actually get up there in front of the class and I fulfilled the assignment, but perhaps not with a, a Robert Frost poem. It certainly dates you, um, Farrell and Getty, as your, as your high school recitation yes, uh, and your yes. introduction to uh, not just to writing poems, but to presenting poems to the public. Yes. And so then I wrote, through, I wrote in high school and in, and in college and just knew I, knew I wanted to write. I didn't have like a, didn't go on to get an advanced degree or anything. I just, I didn't really have a sense of what that would mean as a career. I just knew I wanted to do it. So talk to me a little bit about Haystack at that moment. You had heard of it, and why did you choose to go there as opposed to? It was probably convenience, I think. I I had visited uh, earlier because a friend of mine from high school was taking a glassblowing class, and and it was at the same time I was visiting my friend Alice at Fly Point. So we drove over and went to Haystack, and I remember going there, and it was, you know, seeing the the decks 
by the ocean. You know, so I was familiar with it, uh, and I had another friend who'd gone there. So I think I knew of it that way. And when I went, I, uh, I think it gave me a sense of the range of people who were making things. Uh, I think at first I was concerned about what my ability level would be like relative to other people. But, you know, in retrospect, that, was, that really wasn't an issue. I learned a lot from people who were in the workshop with me. You know, just side by side, we'd stay up late, late at night. There was really no, there was no time zone. You know, you just could work. And I, I worked and I also uh, washed dishes in the kitchen. So I got to meet people who did that, which I, you know, remember probably just as well as the workshop. Uh, mm-hmm. But I left with a sense of, of possibility of different ways of working. So I think it was a it was a big influence on me then. So tell me a little bit about the founding uh, of of Haystack. I mean, why and and why why on you know Stonington, Maine? Well, it originally was in the town of Montville, which is where Haystack Mountain is. So if you're driving west, I think it's maybe about twenty miles west of Belfast on Route Three, you'll see a rounded hill and that's haystack mountain and that's where the school was for its first almost 10 years at 61 it opened in deer isle but from 1950 when it was founded 51 was the first year for those 10 years it was it was there until the state re-engineered route three and had it go straight through the campus Um, the state ever sensitive to the arts right yes Uh, it was part of uh, post-war Interest in craft, I, I think it, it was a group of, uh, of makers from Maine, Ed Sewell and uh, Bill and Stel Chevis. Uh, and uh, Margaret Swart was one of the people who was involved with them. And her sister, Mary Beeson Bishop, was a philanthropist from Flint, Michigan. And she was brought in and that led to, uh, she provided funding to help it start. And Fran Merritt was hired as the first director, and he and his wife Priscilla at first worked together on it, and then uh, Fran became sole director. Can you remember? Can you remember the founding mission statement? Well, I remember that on all of our letterhead, even when I first started, it said a research and studio program in the arts, and that came from the original incorporation, and I really liked that because I felt like. Uh, I when I was at Haystack, I didn't want it to be just well, we'll teach you how to make a thing. I love the idea of, of this idea of uh, of research of of going, which maybe means going deeper or examining it in other contexts. And I think that it, that may have been there early in the beginning. And Fran Merritt, as director, certainly encouraged that with the kinds of programming he did with international, bringing in international faculty, having themed sessions during his tenure. And I think that that really influenced my thinking about what that so, might mean. So from the beginning, there was this international attraction and that people would come from Europe and, and, and from around the country to, to, to teach there? Pretty early on, there were people like Annie Albers taught. So definitely a connection. So I think that was pretty early on. And it was, uh, uh, I think, really early on set Haystack apart from other programs in that way. It was very small at first. I think the first summer there were maybe 12 people there. It was not like, mm-hmm. and gradually got 
more recognition and there weren't that many programs then and it was really gaining recognition it was the move to Dirao was forced by the highway relocation but I think it also provided an opportunity to kind of reimagine the school and in some of the correspondence you can see that I think in terms of the new school was a, a different kind of place. But the crash revival had had begun. I mean, there was uh, there were places around the country where, in in certain universities and private institutions, this whole idea of of a history of craft, particularly American craft, was was growing and established. Yes, and kind of re, like I think in in some ways reinvented. There's a throughout the world. There's craft has been going on as long as we've been standing. I think. Humans have been standing, but the traditions that you know after the war, I, I think, just I guess this is only you know an opinion, but I think a lot of the the GIs who are coming back who could then go through school in the GI Bill who were taken with this notion of of the hand of the handmade in the sense that maybe you're more reconnected with something in a place that was things were changing. If you want to feel in contact with something, you want to have your hands on it, and I think that was. That was part of it. And I think it's still part of it today when you see, like sometimes with poetry, I think when things get dark, people like poetry, you know, like if there's, if they're, they're worried about the world, somebody dies or something, you know, they turn to poetry. And I think in similarly, the feeling of being in touch through craft, through the hand, it is another manifestation of that. It grounds you in a way. So I think you know, after World War II, I think that was what became much larger and then coincided with the counterculture, you know, in the 60s, where it was like, you know, you could live on your own, make all your own things, and you'd be independent, and the world would be better. Then I think that, you know, branches also, you get a more sophisticated group of makers, and you have people involved with agriculture that may be another direction, like Mafka. You know, I think the impulse really was to be connected, I think, is where it comes from. But I think the traditions in America were not it's not a continuous tradition where you'd say, oh, I remember colonial pottery. I, in my mind, it just, you know, people looked at, oh, look at what they do in Japan. We, we could be like, that's amazing. They have a culture that honors it. Let's make pottery like the Japanese or let's weave like the Scandinavians. I think it skipped a, a connection. I think it's always good to remind people about those po- couple of post-war institutions. One, of course, was the Works Progress Administration, which nurtured a whole generation of young architects and artists, archivists, uh, who coming back from the war had no place to go. We were building a, a country that was not necessarily grounded in those things. And so that the WPA gave them opportunity. And then I will say the same thing about the GI Bill. I actually went to graduate school on the GI Bill. And it was an amazing thing because it enabled me to make a choice that I could never have made otherwise. And that was true across the board with people coming back as veterans and that that opportunity was available to to realize yourself as something other than a killing machine. Uh, right. Yeah. And at the same time, the, when those, those people coming through on the GI Bill, the programs at universities were expanding. So the people who went through there got jobs in universities and that led to much more kind of academic-oriented training and craft. Right. Right. It it kept a lot of writers after the second novel uh, out of the streets. Um, Yeah. 
you know, after the first novel and you were completely ecstatic and then you wrote the second and you thought, well, this is the one that's going to be the breakthrough and it wasn't. And then yeah. you said to yourself, well, what am I going to do now? And uh, suddenly there were uh, MFA programs around by the thousands and there were all this kind of a massive employment scheme that gave a lot of people a foundation to, to, uh, to be safe uh, and, and to write. Uh, and created again another generation of novelists, all of whom had to go through the same syndrome. <laughs> right. I, mean, I think it's similar with the with with craft programs at universities for sure. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about craft. Uh, You've mentioned, you know, the the idea of it requires uh, some sort of intersection between material and the human hand. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, I think what attracted me to craft when when I was an aspiring potter was maybe its metaphorical implications, like the idea that you could shape a thing with your hands, the way the hands looked when they were working. You know, I mean, it's definitely a romanticized view of it because everything that used to be made, I guess you could call craft, and that involved a lot of child labor and, and terrible working conditions. So it was not all a harmonious world with the craft maker. But there's something about it, something about a genuine relationship with the material that speaks to us very deeply. When I was at Haystack, I'd always think, boy, I hope nobody asks me what craft is, you know, because then I'll have to answer. And right when I was getting ready to leave Haystack, I was asked to be on Main Calling, and Jennifer Rooks wanted to talk to me about what it was, you know, like being at Haystack for as long as I was. And I thought, oh, no, she's going to ask me what craft is. I think that she did, but on the way there, I, I made up a definition because there's nothing, as you know, like a deadline. Like if you want to know, well, what do you think it is? And at that point, I think I, I came up with a theory, which I, I think still holds that it, that it deals with skill and knowledge and intuition. Right. And so that you need the technical skills to be able to make a thing. You need a knowledge. You need to know that generations before me people figured something out and that is carried forward so that's why this glaze works this is why you can weave this way and then and maybe this is a craft art nexus but then there's this intuition where once you know those things then you can make the next leap into another thing because you know you have the skills to make the thing you know where it came from and then you you can ask what if what if i tried this what would happen then If you are just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at PointedFurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Stuart Kestenbaum, former director of the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, former poet laureate of Maine an arts innovator on the history of craft in Maine. And it deals with materials. And materials have really changed a lot, even from when I started at, at Haystack. It was definitely more uh, specific to a medium. And now there's much more kind of mixed media work growing out of a craft tradition, but not, say, specifically only clay, only fired clay. You know, maybe you, maybe it's painted on, maybe it just gets to 
go back to the earth. You know, it, it really varies. There's an underlying flow, it would seem to me, of utility, that at some point there was a reason, a sort of utilitarian reason too, not necessarily just to be a beautiful thing, uh, but to hold water or to, you know, store something or to drink something and that the human hand then embellished it in some way and made it more beautiful um, as as one way of, of achieving utility. Right. And then, then also it, it's got a function that's, you know, funerary adornment is a different kind of function, but it's it's definitely connecting the hand to the spirit. There's a gallery that Joanne Rapp in Arizona had called Hand in the Spirit. It was the name of the gallery. And I think that's a certain quality where there's definitely, you know, at least in America, maybe I'm coming out of a counterculture tradition, but, you know, of a, a kind of cosmic, you know, the spirit is part of, you know, it's a spiritual undertaking, not just functional. That there's a the hand as a another dimension to the thing that's made. You know, I think when I was trying to make pots, I think I felt that way. I don't, now I, I think it's a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a museum in Paris, uh, which was called the Museum of Popular Art. And it's now been moved. Uh, and, but it was organized around the ideas of, of Claude Lévi-Slaus. So sort of the, it was an anthropology museum, but it was essentially using traditional arts and crafts as a way of releasing this idea of a kind of universal human spirit. And there was one case that I will never forget, one big exhibit case. It took up the wall of a gallery. And there were, I would say, maybe 30 very large pots. They were water or grain pots. So they they were volumetric. And they had all been made from the same clay source. And that clay source was at the center of a network of potters that were working around that source as a supply. And so there was a community of craft that was based on the natural availability of this particular clay. Great. But what was amazing about it was that every one of those pots was decorated differently. So Mm -hmm. every one of them, although it was exactly the same shape, made from exactly the same raw material, was an individualized expression of an artist. Uh, And it just made the point about the, to me, the innate creativity in in humankind so dramatically and so visually and so obviously. I've never forgotten it. Mm -hmm. You know, the... uh... The World Craft Council had an exhibit in the early 70s called In Praise of Hands. And it, it was a traveling show. And the catalog had an essay by Octavio Paz. And I think the essay was called In Praise of Hands as well. And, and he talks about how with craft, all these things are destined to, to break. You know, he said it, it acquits itself well in the, in the airless world of a museum. But that its real purpose is, says the, I think he said craftsman at the time. That's a whole other show. You could say craft maker, craftsperson. You know, the the craft maker teaches us how to die, and therefore teaches us how to live, mm-hmm. Be, because it's got mortality built right into it. It's got, it's not going to last. You make it, it's not going to last, and you make another one, and 
Uh, and I, I, I think people sense the hand, like what you were saying, they, they sense the hand in the work. They sense a, that a, it's an intervention between materials and what it's become is the human. Wow. But you know, so I was thinking like there's a real beauty to industrial designed objects, which also have a hand in them. It's, so it's not a, it gets easy to make a, well, that's not made by hand, therefore it's no good. When actually there's some really awful things that are made by hand. And there's some really beautiful things that are made. A hand's involved in anything. It's just the end, the end look may not be a handmade look. Well, and if, even if it's ugly, if the outcome is beautiful, then it's beautiful. We did a show on um, Maine invention, a long tradition of inventors and tinkers uh, yes. in Maine. And machines that, that no one had ever figured out before, to, you know, coring an apple or coring a uranium core, I have no idea. But the point was that there were sort of Rube Goldberg-y kind of things at the time. But at the time, they did this perfect thing. They came out with the perfect cored apple. And, and yes. that, that ingenuity is also part of it. It's, yes, I love, I love the, the ingenuity of it. I think the longer I was at Haystack, the more... I began, maybe this is a corollary to my uh, skill, knowledge, and intuition, but it's just the ingenuity of humans to just figure stuff out the way, like people who fish figure things out, people who farm, people who mechanics. It's just that, you know, there, there's a, still a human intervention. There's some intuition and knowledge that comes together to make a thing. You, you know the next thing to do because you, like you're a musician, you know your instrument, you know what it can do and you know that what note might fit in, you know, when you play it. I, I think there's an element like that to all, to all our endeavors. Craft just becomes, can become an iconic manifestation of that for people. But I think it's like, it's, it's in everything every day, really. So you left Haystack, you went wandering out into the wilderness and how did you find your way back? Oh, you mean the first time, not when I left my job, when I left, how did I find my way back? Um, I, uh, I was a potter, trying to be a potter. I'm glad most of those works will have broken by now so nobody can actually see them. But I was making pots and I got a job as director of the Children's Museum, the one that's in Portland now, but it was in Cape Elizabeth, and I was the only employee. So I became involved in arts administration and I got a job at the Maine Arts Commission and eventually became the assistant director there. So that was probably, maybe I was there for probably eight years. And then the job at Haystack opened up and I thought that part of the state, Hancock County, the coast, I thought I really, I really wanted to be there. And I thought I, I really want this job. I like the way, the sense of community that I remembered from that. And so that kind of led me back there. I, I worked with Haystack because I, it, you know, administered grants at the Arts Commission too. So I'd been in contact with the school. Right. Right. Uh, it's kind of a return, a reunion, coming home again in a way. But now you're, uh, you have a different set of skills. Coming back, yes. Yeah. Was it hard? Was it hard? I didn't know that much about all the craft media. So that took a little while to, not a little while. I mean, I, just, I knew I had to learn that. But I think, you know, I was really taken by this power of uh, community, which I got to witness over and over again. You know, it, if it happens one time, you think, wow, that, you know, it's amazing that happened. And, and yet it happened invariably every time you bring a group of people together and you say, we don't care who you are, what your background is. You're going to just, 
We're all together. It's a small group. And I think the scale of it made a big difference. And this idea of creativity and making is at the core of this endeavor we're on. And you make a good place for them to be. You're up front with the main coast, that beautiful view from the staircase. Right. You're you're away from the rest of your life. Yeah. 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 And I think part of it is you 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 go someplace where you can be who you think you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like if you went with a whole group of friends, then you might think, oh, I'm going to be the same person I am. But if you somehow bring people from all different backgrounds and also there's a pretty wide age range, you know, for those kind of core programs, you had to be at least 18, but there's no upper limit. So you could have a workshop with somebody who's 85, somebody who's 18, somebody who's in graduate school, somebody who's a surgeon who likes to work in craft. You could have uh, somebody who's just left a job and trying to figure out what they want to do, all in the same space and a long enough time that you get to know each other short enough that you're not critical. You, you adjust and you can be with that group. And, and it's a, it kind of, I think, brings out the, the very best in, in how people are looking at who they can be. So it, it, it always felt pretty remarkable. Like I felt like I was, if I were to go back to the Jersey Shore, I was really riding that wave. You know, you're riding the waves of, that, of how people are, are thinking. You know, they, they would say, well, this isn't the real world. And then you think, well, maybe what if this were the real world, you know? Maybe it is. So you you're, you come as an administrator. The, the spirit of the place is established. Um, it has this multidiscipline, multigenerational kind of record his, history. The context works. Do you think they hired you to do something else? When they when they picked you over someone else, did they did they have something in mind that that you didn't know that they wanted you to do? They, they never told me, so I don't. <laughs> I I knew, I you know I remembered from the things that that Fran Merritt had done, who was the founding director, and I thought, well, these those things felt like so fresh when he did them. He had like whole sessions, like a Dutch session. Uh, he had a, an African session. It brought together uh, African teachers, African Americans as teachers and students. And this was like 1976, I think. Could have been before then. Just lots of things I thought, well, what could I do that would take that spirit of innovation or looking at craft as a way of framing the world, like craft and writing, craft and the environment, craft and community. What are different ways that we can look at that? And I think that that really influenced my thinking is really kind of going back to like, what was the original spark of this institution and how can I keep it going? It wouldn't be like in, in 1975 to have a workshop in wood firing would be completely innovative. But, you know, then a lot of places are teaching workshops. So what do you do that makes it different than, I mean, workshop is a wonderful thing, but I wanted to make sure we had things that were kind of pushing it, how we looked at, craft and making in, in different contexts. Can you give me some examples of that? Well, the biggest one was probably working with MIT and the Fab Lab. You know, there's always a, a certain hierarchy to like, well, oh yeah, you're a potter. Good for you. Isn't that great? You know, if you, you wouldn't say, oh, you're a nuclear physicist. Good for you. That must be fun. You know, it's like we did a, a program uh, actually it was a symposium called digital dialogues technology in the hand 
looking at the digits and the digit the digits of your hands and the, and the ones and zeros, I guess, of uh, the computer world. And we brought together half people affiliated with MIT and half affiliated with Haystack at Haystack. So I felt like we had the home field advantage and we had <laughs> workshop. Uh, people would presented their work and then we put together people in different studios representing each background. So there was a, the head of the, was head of the haptic lab at MIT, Mandiyam Srinivasan, put together with a, a sculptor, Bill Daly. Srini was from MIT, and they worked side by side. You know, like Bill's working with tar paper and glue guns, and, and Srini had never hadn't touched clay since he was in sixth grade in India. And somehow they were like working together. And, and it kind of gave Kraft the same level as if we'd gone to MIT, we would have been eaten alive. But because we did it at Haystack, it, it balanced us in a way. And I, and I think what I loved about it is it began to see that there was a lot in common in terms of the ingenuity that we talked about. I think that's really what computer programming, figuring out how, how hot iron needs to be before you can do a forge weld. You know, they're very different, but they're not. You know, it's like somebody, it's understanding the material, it's knowing what it can do. Well, I realized they didn't get upset when their computers crashed. This was like 2002, back when a computer crashing seemed like a bad thing. It doesn't seem to happen so much anymore, but they just said, oh, yeah, that program always crashes. And I thought, oh, wow, that's like, you know, to me, that would be like a horrible thing, only a crash. But for them, it's just like, yeah, it just goes along with the territory. We're figuring stuff out. And I think that's when I could really see this connection. Initially, I thought we are so different than MIT. We, there's no reason we should even be in the same room. Somebody had suggested it to me. I said, we're so different. It was a guy named Mitch Resnick who worked at the, the Media Lab. He said, no, I think you'll find we have a lot in common. And I think uh, there are de- definitely differences, but that notion of, um, of understanding the material, whatever that is that you're working with, and human ingenuity, to me, ties them all together. Right. Well, you'd already established a little bit of that idea by putting uh, disciplines together prior. I mean, you put potters together with painters, or you put jewelry makers with sculptors. And that already had started to break down barriers and start new conversations. But this particular one was cosmic. It must have been amazing to have been there and seen that work. And a lot of it had to do with the place, I suspect, the spirit of the place. Right. Right. I think it's a spirit that just said, you can experiment here, I yeah. think. And and this a certain simplicity. So you could be complex, but there's something about that that campus, which is a so simple in terms of its its construction. It's as basic as you can get, yet it makes that basic thing and becomes something that's beyond basic, that transcends basic. Because it's a it's paying attention to the design of the thing, the materials. And I think that tra- kind of travels with everything that happens there. You could bring a group of insurance executives and they'd be different, you know. Yeah. I took a course with the Fab Lab later on, somewhere in the mid 2000s. And it ended up that my my teammate was a nine-year-old young man who happened to be the son of the, I think, of the founder of the Fab Lab. And he was a reticent boy. He was nine. I was probably 79. And he had no idea how to talk to me. And I, frankly, had no idea how to talk to him either. But we sat and we were expected to work together. And so we sat down and I started talking to him about I have an avatar. I, I respond to turtles. 
as a kind of, of species with which I identify. And I was sort of prattling along about that. And he must have thought, you know, how silly is that? I know about ninja turtles, but this guy doesn't even know they exist. Nonetheless, he was excited. And by the end of the day, very quickly, we had essentially scanned a little turtle that I had in my library, and we had turned it into its internal architecture. And then we had printed it out in slices, and then both horizontal and vertical. And then we had reassembled it and presented it to the group. And I sat there and watched this young man, and I just said, wow, look at this. This is this is the future of making. This young man is a maker. The tool mm-hmm. is irrelevant. He happens yes. to work this one very, very well. But, you know, it's not a chisel. But in a way, it it is. And it's not a saw. But then the micro cutting and all the rest of it off the computer made it a saw. And we did this thing and presented it. And I don't know what people thought about it, except I was just delighted. And I think I still mm-hmm. have it, as a matter of fact. But it's a perfect example of symbiosis and synergy that happens when you put people in a context that is unexpected and possible. Right. And there's no other place to go. Like no you're just there. Like Yeah. 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 I don't want to beat this over the head too much, but there is uh, this sort of psyche thing. That that's why it was so interesting to see those cases in the Levi Strauss Museum, to see those all those pots, same material entirely different sense of, of psychological expression through the glaze and the, and the patterns. And I think that everybody's got this somewhere inside them. You know, it's like maybe everybody's got a two-handed set shot, which dates me. But on the other hand, you have to discover. You have to discover it. And the opportunity in, in, in our culture, I don't know. Is it is there more opportunity to discover that this kind of creativity now, or are we, or is it less and less? Well, you know, certainly like digital making, and that's certainly like lots of opportunities, lots of places. I think like understanding how a thing goes together from beginning to end, that feels like not so much. Our grandchildren were here and I found some old Mr. Rogers episodes. And he actually would show these films of like, how erasers are made, you know, and it goes through like the factory and they put together like this oil thing, whatever rubber, I guess it's all kind of melted together, baked, put on sheets, cut, cut, stamped, you know, with the company name. And then they have like making Cheerios as another one. You know, you realize you're, you actually have no idea these things that are in your life all the time, like how they got there, where they're, how they're made, yeah. you know, how the parts go together. And that's like, we've lost that within, was like a hundred years, maybe that you'd actually go somewhere. You'd say, well, yeah, that's a, that's a post and beam barn. I know how that's made because we make it right here, you know? Yeah. And, and, that's, and then unless you actually work with the materials, you don't, you, you may lose that. So I feel like that, that sense of how things go together maybe is uh, less, but a, a global sense seems greater. Like people may be looking at, we haven't solved any of these things yet, but like a look at, at larger design making issues like how you deal with rising sea levels like what kind of ingenuity do you need in coastal communities 
If you are just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Stuart Kestenbaum, former director of the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, former poet laureate of Maine, an arts innovator on the history of craft in Maine. I was asked by one of my grandchildren, oddly enough, what's a carburetor? Well, it's an old thing that you don't really need anymore. You know, there's, there, there are no carburetors in the cars that you're going to drive. It's going to be different. Uh, and Great. you may want to research carburetors when you're in the history department at, at, at some place, and it would be a quaint um, history of science project. But the, the whole idea of trying to reach backwards seems counterintuitive and not particularly useful. But when you start looking at the other way, and leaning forward, and so therefore you enter the world of startups. Every young person's dream is to run a startup. Well, inside every startup, there is an ingenious idea. There is something novel. There is, there is some kind of invention. There's some kind of treatment of a process. There's some kind of thing that hasn't been made before and which is a shortcut or actually a completely new technology. And that, I think, is incredibly exciting. It's one of the most exciting things I feel about the time we're in. All the rest of it, you know, who cares? But this whole idea that there are all these young people out here trying to come up with something that is novel, radical, transformational, and useful in the new world is, is exhilarating. It is. And, you know, I was thinking, like, failure is part of that. Like you have an idea and you try it out, it doesn't work, but what are you going to do next? Huh? I was thinking like about headlines that make it seem like failure's failure, but failure is actually like a way to success too. I mean, it's like if we don't accept that you have to understand, it takes a while to figure a thing out and uh, we need more sympathy for that, I think. You're not going to get there on the, the first time is not going to do it. When you left Haystack, did you have something specific in mind? I know that I know certain things happened after that, but were they the things that you thought would happen or did they fall into place opportunistically? I think they mostly fell into place. I knew I I knew I, I had other projects in me and I felt like I'd I'd done a lot of things with Haystack and I thought, well, it's in great shape now, it's time for somebody else. I'd much rather have somebody say, Too bad he's going then. He stayed too long. So I, I, I knew that, you know, I didn't want to be in the latter position. And I knew I wanted to, I'd been thinking about doing more teaching with art students to how they would talk about their work. When I hear presentations sometimes, people, there's the genuine thing that people think about why they make work. And then there was this polysyllabic overlay to trying to describe the work based on how they thought you were supposed to sound to make it sound important. And, right. and to me, the most important thing is if you can speak as deeply as you can about why you make the work. Mm-hmm. So to have people not be afraid of language, to use a genuine language to talk about their work. There's the phenomenon of the artist's statement, which is a, a sort of an interesting uh, format 
which I would say about 95% of the time, a complete, utter failure. Many of them all sound exactly the same. And then there's this other underlying, more insidious thing, is that they begin to sound like lesser iterations of what the critics might write about that art. And that's not any better, actually. It's just more highfalutin. It's really interesting when you can find an artist who can stand up in front of her painting and be honest and reveal. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. And I think when you see that, I got to listen to, I mean, I think it's probably, you know, over a thousand presentations, I think. I'm trying to think. It could be more. A lot of presentations by people talking about their work. And I know the times I was most engaged is when you felt like the person spoke in a way that was genuine, that spoke about their relationship to the work, to the materials, to why they did it. You know, not how often you can go into abstraction versus just saying, I made this because, and get to something that's, that was really why you made it, not why you think you should say why you made it. And that, that's its own investigation, I guess. But I, I think an audience definitely feel engaged with that. It doesn't kind of slide into a, an abstraction about what's important and what's not important. Yeah. And that was one of the beauties of Haystack, uh, is that you couldn't avoid the natural world. And so that that always informed every aspect of the entire experience, as far as I can tell. It was just an infusion in beauty that was particularly yes, amazing. It's like either like a ship or a tree house or both. You're like right there. Yeah. You realize uh, you're in the context of uh, like a larger world, the way being in a Western state could make you feel, I think, when you just see a big landscape. So you got this opportunity, you, you did a, a few years as an art administrator in Portland, I know that, and that's probably when you heard many of those presentations, but you went on to do this new project at Monson Arts, and I'm really interested in how um, the vision of the Libra Foundation, which enabled this, and your vision came together at the beginning, uh, because it's a pretty radical idea. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was the um, interim president at Maine College of Art, and I just left that, and the Libra Foundation wanted to start a, a residency program in Monson because it was uh, in Piscataquis County, which it seemed like a lot of job losses. It's the poorest county in the state. It's, it's got a population of 18,000 in a, a geographic area the size of Connecticut. And they wanted to have a kind of entrepreneurial, disruptive philanthropy that would get things going in a different way. And they wanted to do that through the arts and through recreation. And in Monson, they, they wanted to have a residency program. And I just met with them and just talked about not just thinking art's going to save the world. Like if you bring artists to a place, artists are so special, their presence is going to change things, but that you have to be a part of the community that you're in. So like at Haystack, I you know, I worked really hard to have us be part of the community we're in. We had programs for high school kids, programs for adults in the community that we were a part of what went on. I said, so you really need to think not just having residents, but think about what you're doing in the community. Uh, they asked me to design the program for them. So I said, that sounds like a great idea. So we started always knowing that the community should be a, a big part of it. So it's 
it's residencies for artists and writers, but right now we have programs for high school kids from six area high schools and also workshops so that if you're not a, an artist who's ready to go on month-long residency, but you want to learn more about painting, you can take a painting workshop in the summer. So it's kind of all three together, but I think the sense of honoring the place that you're in, which I, I think Haystack tried to do, is the same thing as like honoring the, their traditions of the North Woods. There's a sense of place that's important. So it's not like it could be anywhere. It's there. It's in that place. So so we have a gallery of exhibitions that uh, exhibitions. We did one of Wabanaki basket makers for the bicentennial, uh, one for Mons and Maine's bicentennial last year, an art exhibit. We had one called Artists of the Forest, which are artists of, along northern New England and upstate New York working in wood. So that you're saying, not like, well, we brought artists in because they're so special and look, they'll make the place special. It's saying, actually, art making is everywhere and different people do it in different ways. And it's been happening here. And this is another iteration of that that happening. But it's it's not making a hierarchy. And it's also, I think, not making it that you, you should acknowledge where you live and be a part of that place that you live, not, ho- not hover above it. And I think that was important to me and I think important to the Libra Foundation. How has the community responded? I mean, they've the physical town is much improved by renovation and repair. Does it seem to have worked in terms of a community revival aspect? I, I think it has, and I think it's only it's really at the beginning. We started in 2017. I, I started in October of 2017, so first program was 2018 in the summer. Then we had the pandemic, but there's a sense of place. Somebody said to me that people really like seeing the kids in town when they come to do, you know, they work in the same studio buildings that the artists would be in. I was just there last week. And during a break, these, uh, you know, young high, high school students went and visited some of the artists in their studios. And just to like be around somebody who said, you know, I, this is what I do for, I commit my life to, this is what I make. To be 17 and see that and think, oh my goodness, that, that actually, that exists in the world. That's something you can do. I don't know where that'll go, and it won't go the same place with every person, but I, I think those connections are, are important. I think people are noticing those. It, it takes it, The more you do in a community, the more people trust you, and you're part of that. And I, I, feel like that's, I feel like that's happening. And the other thing about it is it's not like Haystack is in sunshine. It's, it's far away from everything. Skelhegan is off on its own. But Monson is actually right in the downtown, right on the main street with studio buildings. So like if you're a resident and you get your breakfast at the general store, then you're going to have a conversation with somebody about what you're doing. And that, that wouldn't happen at a, a residency this far away. So there's a, there's a kind of interaction with the people. And I, to me, it's like, you know, to live in a rural community with, with not as many resources, you have to be ingenious to figure a lot of things out. And I feel like like artists are using ingenuity all the time. So even if you don't quite get what the person's doing, I think you can appreciate that they're, they're figuring a thing out, how to do it, how to make a go of it. And that goes both ways. Well, with Monson and Haystack and Skowhegan and the Bain College of the Arts and the Salt Writing Program and the Center for Photography Arts and the Center for Furniture and the Wooden Boat School, and many, many other things that are around here very quietly in Maine are collectively a kind of birthing ground 
uh, and place where where people come from away and from locally and are essentially combining themselves and learning from each other through making. When I was thinking about this the other day, I thought, well, you know, there's just always this, this hierarchy. There's art and then there's craft. It's always art first, craft second. And I kept saying to myself, well, you know, that's got it all wrong because what is elevated and uh, as art frequently as beautiful it made it is and how uh, is useless. I mean, it, it covered the face of the dead Pharaoh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it has any, any kind of direct link to the slaves. <laughs> but, um, but making is different because there is no art without a maker. And so the thing has been reversed. And the only culture that I, you mentioned it earlier, the only culture that I can think of where this is done, maybe in African cultures, but is Japan, where the maker is first. And the art is a byproduct, it seems to me. And so often the, the maker is elevated and respected and honored. And the work is just simply evidence of why that respect is deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that may be happening here, where we're sort of using the, the atmosphere of Maine and its spirit of place that is sort of reordering, reordering the value system and sort of methods or the order of creativity that right. can happen here at a small personal scale. Well, when you were, you were, you know, naming the programs, I'm thinking, you know, they're all uh, transformational learning experiences. You know, you know, there's nobody who goes there and rolls their eyes when they're in a class. You know, oh, no, I got to take this for credit. It's like people who go to a program like Wooden Boat or Haystack, they, they're ready to do something different. They're kind of, they're at a, that place and that makes it a whole different kind of experience. But then, you know, you think it's actually kind of a, radical thing it's happening in little in small ways but continuously over decades of people having those kinds of experiences that's that's pretty a pretty powerful thing so uh i asked you uh when we talked about this originally uh you are a former poet laureate after all and so uh as a poet have you anything you'd like to share with us which somehow captures the things that we've been talking about well, yes. Yeah. You know, I think uh, I began, as I was at Haystack, two things happened to me. One is I actually involved more writers because I thought I could bring them in and they could, they'd have a slightly different take on the world. And it, it it's good to bring different art forms together because they can all have their own silos, I think. They're, you know, you don't, you know, writing, but you don't know anything about craft or, you know, craft, you don't know anything about writing. And then you, so you have different kinds of conversations. And I began to see, you know, words as a material because like a, somebody working in wood, you know, the wood does a certain thing and, and the maker responds. You can't not have it be wood and you need the wood to make the thing and you need words to make a poem too. So, and the nature of the material you're working with, let the words you choose change the meaning of the work, I think. So that, I think I began to think that way. And then the other thing that I uh, thought about was this idea of, makers as like you mentioned tinkers before or menders or we could repair things and that repairing things like repairing the world is a big is a human endeavor and so uh, this is a poem that i wrote um, called holding the light gather up whatever is glittering in the gutter 
whatever has tumbled in the waves or fallen in flames out of the sky. For it's not only our hearts that are broken, but the heart of the world as well. Stitch it back together. Make a place where the day speaks to the night and the earth speaks to the sky. Whether we created God or God created us, it all comes down to this. In our imperfect world, we are meant to repair and stitch together what beauty there is. Stitch it with compassion and wire. See how everything we have made gathers the light inside itself and overflows a blessing. Well, I think we've stitched this together. We've run out of time. Thank you, Stu. It was, was a, the kind of conversation I certainly expected. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. My guest today has been Stuart Kestenbaum. Conversations from the Point at First has begun its second year of broadcast, and we are grateful to the board, staff, volunteers, and members of WERU Community Radio who make the program possible. We are grateful as well to the editors and subscribers of Maine Monitor, an online aggregator of Maine news and investigative reporting, who are posting these interviews monthly in their Sunday edition online at themainmonitor.org. If you have comments or suggestions, I urge you to contact us at info.pointedfurs at gmail.com so that we can continue these special encounters with creative people, our neighbors, whose work and imagination captures and communicates the essence of the wonderful community in which we live. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening. You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Furs, Elite's Island Books audio project. Produced by Trisha Badger. Theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music. Hosted by Peter Neal. Visit pointedfurs.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.